Hello and welcome to Workhorse, the podcast about Royal Australian Air Force C-130 Hercules aircraft. Today we'll look at air movements, AMTDU, Army Air Dispatchers, and some equipment that helped with loading. I'm your host, Bill Karolakis. Some of you know me as K-9. I served over 30 years in the Canadian Air Force and Royal Australian Air Force, primarily in air mobility roles. In this historically informative podcast series, I cover the entire history of Australian C-130s, including a look at how Australian history was shaped by Australia's Hercules aircraft. This podcast is generally chronological, and it's based upon an extensive history book I wrote about Australian Air Force C-130s titled Air Mobility Workhorse, which should be published in 2024. In our third episode, we talked with retired Loadmaster Warrant Officer Cole Coyne about Loadmasters and their role in loading C-130s, but we have yet to talk about support trades in any great detail or the equipment that facilitated the loading of C-130s. Today, we'll cross that Rubicon. There are two main areas we're going to look at, Air Force Air Movements and Army Air Dispatchers. Let's start by defining what's meant by the term air movements in the RAF. I tried searching the 5th and 6th editions of the Air Power Manual for this term. Believe it or not, the capability is not mentioned at all. I went further back to the 2nd edition and found it mentioned four times, but used in three different ways. Firstly, to refer to air traffic control, in other words, the movement of aircraft. Second, in a mention of AMTDU and the engineering services it provides for figuring out how to move equipment by air. And yes, I did find one reference to air movements as being part of the logistics operational support system in reference to Iraq. Truly amazing how myopic our doctrine writers can be sometimes. And I can say that because I was one of them for a short time. I did find a doctrinal definition in a cancelled defense instruction from 2012, so we'll use that. And that defense instruction talked about air movements in the context of air logistics support and called it a key role for C-130s, referring to, and this is a quote, control, handling, and processing of passengers and cargo for movement by air. And that's a good enough description for our purposes. It sounds simple, but the fact is that when the pressure's on, getting this wrong can kill aircrew, passengers, and air movements people. There was one example that I'll cover in detail in a future episode referring to Cyclone Tracy, and that was a RAF C-130 that took off from Richmond with a load for Darwin. They were lucky not to crash into the town of Richmond because they took off at 176,000 pounds, in other words, in excess of even the emergency all-up weight. And that was due to an air movement's error. And many people have been hurt during loading of aircraft due to poor standards and quite often because they were rushing. And there are plenty of these sorts of examples in the air transport world. The air movement sections of the late 1950s and early 60s were comprised of equipment assist personnel and clerk equipment personnel, eventually becoming supply trades and later referred to as air movements trade. They undertook the aircraft loaders course and the air movements course respectively. In the 1960s, these personnel were assigned to base squadrons for employment in air movements duties. In other words, they weren't part of a dedicated air movements unit. The lack of a formed air movements unit, like they have in the US, Canada, and the UK, had implications for standardization and training, but I'll leave that issue for another day. One of the early lessons learned by air movements was that it took a long time to hand load a C-130, 
One to two hours was normal, sometimes more, and it was backbreaking work often done in a rush, usually because the aircrew were short of time due to crew duty limitations. For example, Peter Grumps Grimmer worked at air movement sections before becoming a loadmaster on C-130As, and he ended up retiring as a Cat A warrant officer. And he recalled it was arduous work to floor load a C-130 without pallets, and it often involved ropes and cargo nets. And a quote he gave me was, We had to learn how to use rope to tie down cargo. I had no idea that so many knots even existed. Cargo straps were very rare back then and guarded like gold. End quote. It didn't take long for these loading specialists to start suggesting ways to improve the loading process. One such example was a loading trailer devised in mid-1960 by air movement training flights, fitted with rollers so that wooden four-foot square pallets could be rolled up to the back of a C-130 and into the cargo hold on skate wheel rollers, and then they were shifted into position using pry bars. By being able to roll wooden pallets into the back of the aircraft, the loading process was much faster than hand loading. That trailer remained in use until the 1970s. Of course, those pallets had to be offloaded somewhere, and they required the use of a forklift or similar trailer at destination, which of course had to be pre-coordinated, otherwise the pallets had to be broken down at the destination and hand offloaded. It was not until 463L pallets were acquired, along with the Brooks Perkins cargo loading system, including the straps and the purpose-built rollers for that system, that loading became much faster and simpler. So now's a good a time as any to cover the BP system. Back in the day when the USAF acquired C-130s, they came with the Brooks and Perkins cargo loading system, which is called the BP system for short. The BP system was purpose-built for C-130s to enable palletized cargo to be easily loaded into the aircraft on rollers. The BP system was intended to be utilized with the 463L pallet. This pallet was made of a lightweight metal, measured 108 by 88 inches, and was known as the L pallet. It was robust enough to withstand the rigors of loading and unloading, and it became an essential component of C-130 cargo movement. The BP system was comprised of side rails that ran the length of the cargo hold on each side of the floor. These rails guided the L pallets into the aircraft and provided lateral and vertical restraint up to 8G. With integral locks inside the rails, the pallets could not move during flight, and the locks could be retracted one at a time, or en masse, for airdrop or combat offloading. Each L pallet could carry up to 10,000 pounds and had tie-down rings along its sides to secure chains, straps, or netting, or whatever else was used to hold the cargo onto the L pallet. This versatile loading system enabled very rapid turnaround times. In the hands of an experienced forklift operator, or using a TALU, which I'll talk about shortly, a full C-130 could be unloaded in under five minutes, and using a combat offload technique, all L pallets could be removed from a C-130 in a matter of seconds. For example, I recall landing in Tarankout one time back in 2007, and the forklift operator managed to remove three pallets and load three pallets in under five minutes. Absolutely spectacular work. That whole team did that day in and day out to ensure rapid turnarounds in what was a threat environment. Unfortunately, Australia elected not to purchase the L pallets in 1958, and Australia only acquired four of the Dash 1A BP systems, 
Without L pallets in the RAF inventory, C-130A crews normally flew with a flat floor and used pry bars and skate rollers for loading wooden pallets, as we discussed earlier. And in those days, they normally carried eight sets of skate rollers, which were basically about a foot wide and had a whole bunch of metal rollers so that something flat could be easily slid along the top of the skate roller. The four sets of BP rails were essential for heavy equipment airdrop, but since they were difficult to install and remove, initially they were only fitted when doing airdrop. When C-130s began operating in combat environments, delays caused by slow loading increased the likelihood of being attacked. Thus, some entrepreneurial crew took matters into their own hands. Using borrowed USAF L pallets, the crew demonstrated that the loading and unloading process could be normalized at under 30 minutes, about a third of what was previously the norm. Although it took a bit of convincing, within a few months of commencing operations in Vietnam, the RAF finally put in an order for L pallets. When they had a BP system installed, C-130As were able to use L pallets with the skate rollers. C-130Es were acquired with the Dash-1A BP system, and it was left installed in the aircraft. Thus, C-130Es were able to regularly use L pallets when they were available. The C-130Es upgraded to the Dash-3B BP system in the early 1970s, and the C-130As inherited the Dash-1A BP rails from 37 Squadron. The C-130Es were later upgraded to the Dash-4 BP system, and that occurred when the C-130Hs were acquired, and the C-130Hs came with the Dash-4 system. To load pallets with the BP system, purpose-built floor rollers, which were designed to be installed on the C-130 floor, became available on the RAF with the acquisition of the C-130E in 1966. The rollers were easily installed and removed by hand. Some aircraft built in the 2000s or later had rollers built into the floor which could automatically be retracted or put back in place, thereby easily converting to a flat floor or to a roller floor for whatever needed to be done. For example, you'd want a flat floor when you've got wheeled cargo or you'd want rollers for pallets. Thanks to the C-130, the L pallets became the standard for most global military air cargo movements and even some civilian cargo movers. In time, these pallets could be found at virtually every military unit and airport around the Western world. With so much relying on L pallets, they became a commodity of their own, and they were in high demand during operations such as humanitarian assistance, disaster relief settings. Every experienced air mobility planner knows that one of the very first loads into a forward operating base has to be a healthy supply of L pallets. And in lengthy operations, there needs to be a plan to recover the L pallets from the forward operating bases. Now, I mentioned the TALU a few minutes ago. Its formal name was Truck Aircraft Loading Unloading Vehicle, and the acronym therefore being TALU. By the way, talk about an awkward name. Then again, I guess if you talk to any Western Air Force Air Movements person, they know exactly what a TALU is. One of the difficulties air movements had with loading C-130s was that there wasn't a purpose-built vehicle capable of maneuvering behind a C-130 to simplify the onload of pallets. In the mid-1960s, the director of movements, Wing Commander Casey, who later became an Air Commodore, generated the design criteria for the development of an Australian-built truck aircraft loading-unloading. 
in other words, the talus. The design called for the ability to maneuver the loading floor by raising it in the fore and aft plane, tilting it sideways to allow for an uneven surface, and to move it side to side to ensure alignment with the aircraft. Static General Engineering of Adelaide delivered a prototype in 1966 and four production units by 1968. Trials were conducted with assistance from AMTDU, and by 1974, these units were in full production. That design was so successful that many C-130 operators around the world purchased the Talu, and Lockheed offered to market it in the U.S. This style of loader is now commonplace in many air forces. Good old Aussie innovation. Let's switch gears now and look at the Army's air dispatchers. They rigged loads for airdrop and operated out of Army's 176 Squadron at Richmond, which is still there today in 2023. Their work with rigging loads and parachutes was primarily supporting air mobility training and the odd operational drop for the Air Force and Army. They also rigged personnel parachutes, but in the 1960s, only Special Forces were doing personnel drops. Air dispatcher training was centralized at Air Movement's training flight, which was expanded on the 1st of October 1965 when it was formed into a separate unit called Air Mobility Training and Development Unit, or AMTDU for short. AMTDU's Air Force and Army training sections developed a series of courses for Army and Air Force personnel directly in support of the C-130. Army personnel were taught how to rig loads for airdrop and how to plan unit movements using C-130s. And all services were offered dangerous goods handling courses by AMTDU because there are special requirements for moving dangerous goods by air. In addition to training, AMTDU developed the capability to conduct first principles engineering to ascertain how to ensure loads could be safely secured and airdropped. And remember, you've got to be able to get the load into the airplane without damaging the load or damaging the airplane. It's got to be secured in the aircraft so that it doesn't move during flight and can survive maneuvering while in flight. And then of course you've got to do the reverse and remove it without damaging the load or the aircraft, possibly while the airplane is actually flying. In other words, using parachutes. One example of the science involved, done in the early 1960s, relates to determining the correct amount of energy dissipating material, or EDM for short, to use under airdropped loads. Given that some airdrop loads hit the ground with an instantaneous 20G loading, this EDM material was critical to ensuring loads were properly designed to withstand the rigors of airdrop. The EDM used was a honeycombed cardboard. It came in sheets about four inches thick, and the honeycombed structure of the cardboard was such that it had pockets of air built throughout this sheet of four inch thick cardboard. Those pockets of air acted as a cushion when the cardboard was crushed by the load, causing the kinetic energy to be dissipated into the sheet of the dissipating material vice the load that was stacked on top of it. For particularly heavy loads, there needed to be several layers of these cardboard sheets stacked up under the load to ensure that the load was not damaged. The number of sheets used for any given load was calculated by AMTDU engineers and tested in AMTDU's hangar, which is Hangar 2 at RAF Base Richmond. That hangar is one of the original hangars at RAF Richmond. It's not as massive as modern-day aircraft hangars, but it's still plenty big enough. 
In Hangar 2, there's a huge gantry crane that can lift loads such that they are then dropped from whatever height is required to test the load design to see if the EDM stack will survive impact during a live drop. While it takes a long time to prepare for these test drops, they're critical in making sure that loads can survive the instantaneous 20G impact that occurs when they hit the ground. If you're ever in Richmond, head over to Hangar 2 and have a look around. It's an engineer's paradise, and you can see examples of rigged loads on the hangar floor, and you might even be lucky enough to run into some air dispatchers while they're undergoing training. Well, there's a hell of a lot more we could say about these essential trades, AMTDU, 176 Squadron, and their equipment, but that will all wait for some other episode. That's a wrap for today. Thanks for listening. And if you know anyone that loves aviation, military history, or was a passenger on a C-130, please tell them about the Workhorse Podcast. You can find this podcast on all the usual platforms, and you can also find it on my website, spartanspirit.au. That's one word, spartanspirit.au. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.